0: So yeah, we are in chapter 18 and, and Justin just read for us those, um, those 11 verses, uh, verses 6 through 16, but we are looking at actually the entirety of the chapter this morning and uh, uh, the reason we didn't read all of it is that those verses uh, that we're going to be looking at and walking through uh, this morning actually do an amazing job of kind of summing up everything that we're going to see uh, come after, not just uh, in this chapter, but uh, the rest of uh, 1 Samuel as well. Um, What we've seen to this point is that God's Spirit, we find in chapter 16, has left Saul. Saul has actually been told that this was going to happen, that God is moving on, that there's another anointed one. And in verse 16, it actually takes place that God's Spirit leaves Saul and goes to David. And so with that, we find that David starts having success at things that he sets out to do last week we looked at the story of david and goliath and that was a an example of god's anointing being upon david to do something that everyone else in israel was looking at as this is an impossible task there's no way that this feat can be accomplished uh, we, we see david um, finding favor with saul finding favor with all of israel and at the same time Saul's favor seems to be waning. It's not that people have forgotten about Saul, it's just no longer is Saul the, the guy that everyone looks to and says, "Oh wow, this guy is a king." Now that's what a king looks like. That's what a king does. Saul all of a sudden sees his uh, his standing with all of Israel being threatened. And so in realizing that, uh, the, the words that Justin just read, Saul says, what else do they have to give David than the kingdom itself? And we start to see here what Saul truly values the most. You see, we've been talking about through 1 Samuel so, uh, so far that, that Saul seems to be a guy, or at least when he starts out, you know, he's actually, it seems like he's humble. Uh, it, it seems like he doesn't think too much of himself. And it seems like, Saul wants the right thing. He, he knows kind of what the thing to say is. That it's God that matters, and, and, and it's God that needs to be glorified, and we need to be going to God for things like sacrifices and stuff. And yet, every step of the way, it seemed like there's just this uh, kind of little thing off about Saul. And so finally we get to this place where at its heart, Saul finally reveals his heart, and what his heart is after, and what his heart glorifies more than anything else, and that is that Saul is over the kingdom of Israel. That's what Saul truly values. And so seeing that being threatened by this little punk kid from Bethlehem, Saul says, what else do they have to give him at this point than the thing I value most? And we start to see in Saul's life jealousy begin to creep in. And see, jealousy is this tricky thing because because jealousy is a pretty natural reaction. It is a pretty natural thing for us to see people in certain positions, people with certain things, and to say, I would really like my life to be that way. I wish I had that in my life. I actually think my life would be a whole lot better if that was in my life. To say that you can never, will never react jealousy seems to be a bit impossible because it's a knee-jerk reaction but what we see here with Saul is jealousy creeps in and then jealousy stays and then jealousy takes hold and then jealousy is who Saul is. Uh, it, it's kind of like um, there's this movie um, that came out a while ago. It's with Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro. Uh, it's called Limitless. Have, have any of you ever seen this movie? Um, I, I can remember when this movie first came out, then I was like, man, that looks pretty stupid. And then I watched it, and I was like, that's pretty awesome. And I've watched it like six times since then, probably, because that's what I do. Um, and it drives Hannah crazy. But I, I was actually thinking of this movie uh, this week, and so I looked it up. I was like, oh, that movie came out, it came out like three, four years ago. You know you're getting old when you think a movie came out like three, four years ago, and it turns out it was ten years ago. Um, it came out in 2011, so it's been on TV. So I figure once it hits network broadcast, I don't have to worry about spoiler alerts and everything. So what happens in the movie Limitless, is Bradley Cooper is this kind of just slob of a person. Nothing spectacular, nothing amazing. Uh, His life is a mess, his relationships are a mess, he is going nowhere in life. And he comes across this little pill that he finds that when he takes it, the far reaches of his brain are all of a sudden unlocked. I think he said something in the movie like, you know, normally we use like 10% of our brain. Well, this, this drug unlocks all of it. And so he's, he's all of a sudden, I mean, he is a superhero almost. He's, he's able to remember things that he very, very vaguely ever came into contact with. And, and he's, his relationships go off the charts and, and he's successful in anything he does. And all of a sudden, everything is clearer and brighter. And he's seeing things going on in a different way. And his eyes are even more blue and amazing and sparkly and everything like that. And, and, and so he takes this pill and all of a sudden sees all of these benefits come to him and to his life and everything he sets out in. But the catch is, as he finds out as he goes along, that as good as the high is, the low is just as bad. That when he comes off of the high from this drug, that he has headaches and he's more groggy and he's not able to put things together, so he has to take another hit of it. And then he has to take another and another. And what he finds out is, is, over time, that he has to be taking more and more and more for the effects to last Longer and longer and longer. And what, but the pr- only problem is is that the more he takes the drug, the more he starts to have adverse reactions to it, and it actually starts to threaten his health, e- e- even his life. And so he has to play this like, game of like, how do, I, how do I manage this thing that is making my life what I want it to be, that's giving me direction and focus and clarity about things, but at the same time I can notice and I can see that it's actually killing me jealousy works like that drug apart from the making your eyes more blue and amazing and everything like that the first hint of it seems great it actually seems natural it seems right to notice the things in your life that you want to notice how other people have it to to see what they have that you should have or you want it makes things a lot more clear it gives you direction and purpose it gives you focus it gives you motivation and desire to make yourself better And what's more is we think, I can just take this one hit now, get what I want, get what I need, and then once I get to that place, once I have these things in my life that I think will make my life better, once I've arrived, I'll have no need for that anymore. I can just let it go. That yes, there's probably going to be a time in my life that I'm going to be a pretty miserable, jealous person to be around. That people aren't going to like me and I'm always going to be talking about how other people have it better than I do. But once I get to the place, the the precipice, the pinnacle of my life, once I've achieved everything, then I can become a joyful, great person to be around. I'll be the life of the party then. The only problem is that this is a lie. Because if we build our life on jealousy, we can't just simply turn a switch and give it up. Once we think we've arrived, we'd like to think, What will I have to be jealous of when I have everything I want? Well, you'll have everything to be jealous of. When success is our measure in life, and however we define success, we actually become envious of everyone else that achieves it. It doesn't matter that you have it, the problem is they have it too. So that car you always wanted, you get it. Well, your neighbor gets it. Okay, you need to have a nicer one. That house you always wanted, you get it. Your neighbor gets it. Okay, I need another one, a vacation house. If these are the things that we build our life around, and we look at other people and we say, I would like to have what they have. I need to have what they have. And we use that as our motivation. That becomes our identity. Identity. What's more is, it's not just simply that it's always this keeping up with the Joneses, one, one more than everybody else. We become jealous by anyone that threatens to take what we have accumulated. We're jealous of losing anything that we consider ours. And I think that jealousy in our life poses a lot bigger risk to ourselves once we've achieved everything we want instead of before. The reason I think that is is it's, it's painfully clear with Saul. Saul is at the pinnacle of political power in Israel. He is the king. He has an army after him. He seems to be pretty well loved by the people. I mean, it's not like they're like, you know, Saul's a bum and David's amazing. They're like, Saul's killed people. I mean, David's just killed a few more. But Saul sees that as a threat to to everything that is what matters most to him. And so what we see here in chapter 18, and we will see through the rest of 1 Samuel, is that Saul's life actually becomes like the second half of drug commercials. You know drug commercials, right? Where they're telling you about a drug to take for this like one thing, and they get like halfway, and they're telling you like for like 30 seconds, you know, this is all the great stuff that it'll do. It'll solve this problem in your life. But then the next minute is them listing all the side effects, that may come from taking that drug, right? Sure, it'll solve this problem, but it's going to cause all of these. You know? Don't worry about those, though. Those are okay. This is, your, this is your main issue. That's exactly what jealousy is like in our life. You want a bigger house? It'll do that for you. Don't worry about all this other stuff it does over here. We see that going on with Saul here, don't we? There in verse 9, it says that Saul had his eye on David. David. Saul is suspicious from David at the very get-go, and he had good reason to be. Because back in chapter 15, Samuel comes to Saul and he tells Saul, your days are numbered. Samuel tells Saul straight up, he says, it's, on, it's this day that the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and he's given it to one of your neighbors. Saul knows that his time as king is numbered. And so Saul's looking around, and he's saying, who could it be? Who could it be? And he sees David, and he sees David rising through the ranks, and he sees David becoming more popular, and he sees David being successful in everything that he's doing, and he thinks, man, this guy kind of looks like me back when I was, you know, good with God. So maybe it's him And maybe I need to do something to keep that from happening, which when we read that and think about it, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense that he would know, but because we like to think, it doesn't make sense that he would know what God wants to do. And the reason it doesn't make sense to us is we like to think that we would all, if we knew what God wanted, if God made it abundantly, painfully clear to us, right, that this is what he wanted to do. That, hey, as hard as it might be to hear that, you know what, like God's moving in a new direction, there's going to be a new king, just know that that's coming down the pipe. That's hard to hear, but we would say, well, that's what God wants. And so I'll do it. But the reality is, is that we're not that way and neither was Saul. And we're more like Saul than we like to think we are. That he knew what God wanted to do, And he says, you know what, that just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me because I enjoy being king. I enjoy being over this kingdom. And I am threatened and jealous of anyone else that might be in this position, regardless of whether or not God wants me here. And what we see is one of the first effects that jealousy will have in our life is that jealousy may cause amnesia. It causes another, uh, a bunch of other stuff. But one of the things is we begin to experience memory loss. And this is why God says that jealousy is not for us. We can get a little confused as we read scripture regarding this issue of being jealous or not. Because it's used a lot. And actually, God uses this word, the Hebrew word for jealousy, to describe himself. In the Hebrew, this is the word kana. I 'm pretty sure I mispronounced it because I think it's actually it ends with a k, like and I hate saying that i I think I sound ridiculous so i try to I so, try to say it right, I have no idea if I'm saying it right um, and but just know I, I try for you guys me and Justin were actually talking about that earlier, and he's like, man, when I don't know how to pronounce words, I just like intentionally butcher them, and um, I had to explain to him, well, you can do that in youth group, but this is big people, Church Justin, so it just matters a little bit more so i i I, I try for you guys but it's this word, and it's used all over uh, the Old Testament. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is it takes a different form. It's used in a different form whenever it's used to describe God. He says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them, talking about other gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And actually, it's later in Exodus chapter 34, God tells Israel, my name is jealous. The reason God describes himself in this way. The reason God says this is who I am and how you should know me is that the way to define this word in the Hebrew is that what, it, what its desire is, what it's requiring, what it's seeking is an exclusive relationship. This isn't a, 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 about Control. What God wants more than anything else and what he wants you to know about him and what he's desiring for the relationship between you and him is an exclusive relationship. Why? Because exclusivity and intimacy are directly correlated. The more exclusive you are, the more intimate you can be. I mean, we know this just from like simple social interactions, right? The things you would talk about with a person one-on-one are not the same things you would talk about in a group of even five people, right? And if you don't know that, then you're the person making everybody else uncomfortable all the time. I mean, we know that there are things that we would not talk to even a group of five close friends about that we would talk to our spouse about. And if you don't know that, that's free marriage counseling this morning. Exclusivity leads to intimacy and what god wants nothing more is to be intimate with you for you to know him and him to know you for for there to be nothing between you and god knows that the only way for you to have the intimacy that he desires with him is for there to be nothing else that you desire as much as him and so for that very reason, God says, I'm jealous. What's more is God knows he's the only one that can keep this in proper balance. Because this is not about control. He's not a puppet master up there just wanting to do, have us attached to strings and taking us places that we don't want to go. What God is desiring is for us to know him deeply and intimately. But when you and I allow jealousy to not just creep in, but to take hold. As Saul is doing here, we don't know where to stop and we get into issues of control and manipulation. And so the point is that God can say, I'm jealous, but for you and me, jealousy can never be the identity that we take on in our life. It can never be the motivating factor because it will lead us to all these other side effects that are unintended Paul Maxwell says this pretty well. He sums it up. He says, jealousy is tyrannical. It is catastrophic. It is metaphysical. It feels controlling and you cannot escape. It feels as if every particle of self-control you have in your entire being is vaporized in one fell emotional swoop. It brings people to the end of themselves in a millisecond. And they're no longer the same people. we see this going on with Saul right in front of our eyes here it's as if Saul has no idea it's not as if he's forgotten what God said he was going to do Saul remembers that that's made him suspicious of David it's he's forgotten what God said the purpose of Saul being king was for in the first place if you remember back to when Saul was being an as king, God said very explicitly to both him and Samuel, you're going to be different from other kings. You're not going to get to operate the way that other kings do. You're not getting put in this position for yourself. You're not going to get to look at all of this and say, this is my kingdom, this is my people, I can do with what I want. God says there are two reasons that you're being put in this position, Saul. The first is that you will restrain the people, he says. He says, these people want to keep wandering off from me, and I am a jealous God, and I want them to know me in a way that they can't know me if they keep doing that, and so I want you to keep them tethered to me. I want you to keep them pointed and directed and focused on me. But then he also says, Saul, your job here is to protect them from the Philistines, So your purpose for being king is God and the people. And nowhere in that equation, Saul, is it about you or for you. But you see... As Saul's taking that first hit of jealousy and as it's felt good, it's felt right, and and it's clarified his thinking and it has him seeing things that he normally otherwise wouldn't see. He's kept re-upping the dose and the dose and all of a sudden he has forgotten the purpose that God put him in that position. All the things that God said, this is what you're here for, throw them out the window. All the things that God said, Saul, this is not what it's about, Saul says that's exactly what it's about. And the same thing happens to you and me. As jealousy takes hold in our life, as it becomes the identity that we live out of, as it is the motivating factor of how we see the world, how we see other people, and how we get to what we want and desire, we forget why we even started in the first place. We forget the purpose of some of the greatest endeavors of our life. We forget the relationships that were the most meaningful to us. All of a sudden, ministries that were started at one point in time for us to reach out and reach the community have become more about, well, this is what it does for me. This is how it makes me feel. All of a sudden, sacrifices, jobs we have taken for the sake of providing for our family, because we value them so much, They overtake our lives and they actually take away from our time and our focus on our family because why because it fills me it gives me purpose and what's more it gives me standing that i want to have and when we forget the real reason the real purpose we get focused on controlling and maintaining what we have in our life And we start to think that if we don't have it, we'll lose whatever it is that's most important to us. Our security, our value, our ability to even worship God gets thrown off because we don't have this. We forget why God gave it to us in the first place. We forget what we saw as a good thing to begin with because it was serving Him, growing closer to Him. All of the things that should motivate us, that should be the thing in our life. Might as well have never been a thought we had. Because jealousy has run its course in our veins. And all we can think of is, if we lose this, someone else might have it, and I want it for myself. And forgotten purpose and meaning always leads to erratic and extreme behavior. We see this with Saul again. And that Saul tries to kill David. Not just once, but twice. I mean, the guy literally says, I'm going to pin him to the wall. Like he's like, pin the tail on the donkey or something like that. Throws spears at him. So we see then, too, that another side effect of jealousy just might be homicidal tendencies. Okay. When I say if you let jealousy run rampant in your life, you you might become, you know, have tendencies towards the homicidal side of things. I don't mean you're literally going to go around throwing spears at people and and doing those sorts of things. But that is also why we keep the costume closet locked downstairs because there's a lot of spears in there. Um, But it is just as serious, though. We may not be throwing spears at people, but we're essentially doing the same thing that Saul was doing. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. There, there at the very beginning, as God is essentially telling Adam and Eve what their purpose is, what the purpose of all humanity is going to be, as he's giving them the marching orders and asking them to join with him in taking care of this creation that he cares so deeply about, that he's entrusting to them. He says, it says, And God bless them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. The idea here that God is saying is I am entrusting something to you, Adam and Eve, that is very near and dear to me. I love you enough and I want an intimate relationship with you that I don't just simply want you to sit by and see all this great stuff I'm doing. I want you to join me in the purpose of this creation i i i want you to help it prosper and and what's more is i want you to keep it tethered to me that you should be people that are connected to me and and so by subduing and having dominion essentially being kings over creation you'll be the main ones pointing all of creation to me why Because I'm a jealous God and I want to have an intimate relationship with all of creation and every person in it. And so God is calling them to do this thing. To actually maintain and expand the good things that he has created for the sake of the people that will come after them. God is asking Adam and Eve and every person after Adam and Eve that will follow him to do the very hardest thing in the world to do. And that is to care about people that are going to be here when you're gone. To care what their lives are like and to care that they know God the same way that you're able to know God. And the reason I say this is the hardest thing in the world to do, because I'm getting old enough, I'm not that old, but I'm getting old enough to know that this is the hardest thing in the world to do. I can remember thinking when I was a teenager, why does it seem like older generations don't really care about whether or not we know Jesus? That they don't really seem to take it into their thought process of how they do church and what they talk about and, every, and everything like that. I can tell you now that I am in my mid-30s. I'm far enough along that there are generations coming behind me that I look at what they're doing and how they dress and I'm like, it's a lost cause anyway. I just don't know what the point is. I mean, I see the TikTok videos and I'm just like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. It is the hardest thing in the world to, see, to care about the generation coming up behind you. Why? Because you see all the mistakes they're making because they're dumber than you are because they haven't lived as much life as you have. But that is what God calls Adam and Eve and all of us since then to do. But the thing is, is that in Genesis chapter 1, sin hasn't come into the picture. It doesn't come in until Genesis chapter 3. And the thing we know about sin is that sin perverts the truth. Sin doesn't get rid of truth. It perverts it. The thing that makes sin so appealing and sounds so good is that it is 90% truth and 10% false. And all of that truth wrapped around one little lie makes it really hard to figure out what the lie is. And so we read and we hear and it's, it's implanted in our DNA to subdue and have dominion over. But in the context, in the consequence of sin, it is now what we hear and what we think of accumulate rather than share. What can I have? What works for me? What do I need? You see, jealousy leads to, at the very least, a disregard for those after us. God had told Saul, there is someone else coming after you. Because regardless of what Saul wanted, there was going to have to be someone else after him. And Saul did not know a, the exact timeline that all of these things would come about. But Saul was so racked with jealousy and fear and insecurity that he could not stand the thought of anyone, even after he was gone, having what he had. He actually didn't care at this point. What happened to Israel after he was gone? Just that it was there for him to have while he was there. It actually says that Saul feared David. That is crazy, right? Here is Saul, the king of everything, and this little punk from Bethlehem. What does Saul have to fear from David? But jealousy will lead us, as it was leading Saul, to a place where the question we are asking is, what do I need? Do I have what I need? Not, do those coming after me, those that can't speak for themselves, those that are powerless, those that are not in the room, do they have what they need? No, it's, do I have what I need? And the worst thing that can happen is that my way of life is compromised. So we see Saul working to try to maneuver and manipulate things. He he tries to turn people against David. He he actually tries to get him killed several times. Saul sends him out and and he says, hey, you know, if you do this thing, you can marry one of my daughters. And he's thinking, oh man, this guy's going to get killed and, and everything like that. Saul gets to a place because of his homicidal tendencies. It's not even that he has these tendencies towards David necessarily. Saul is homicidal towards God's plan. That's the stark truth of the matter. That when we get down to it, Saul was actively working against God's plan. Saul single-handedly held up the advancement of God's kingdom for years because jealousy had overtaken him to such a degree he could not fathom the space that God's grace allowed for another anointed to come in. This Saul had an opportunity, I think, to, to say, you know what, God, your way is best. And so if that's what you want, you can have it. And the true irony of the situation is the greatest opposition that Israel has over these next few years does not come from the Philistines, but it comes from within in Israel. It actually comes from their king itself, himself. Jealousy will lead us to become the very thing we swore to defeat and conquer. And ultimately, jealousy always will cause, not just may cause, your greatest fears to be realized. We see this with Saul. Again, it's a tale as old as time, and that is not, the tale of as old uh, as time is not Beauty and the Beast and true love. The tale as old as time is the very thing we fear the most and we seek to hang on to and we seek to keep from happening is the thing we lose and the thing that ends up happening even more drastically and dramatically in our life. Saul did not want to lose his standing in his place in Israel. He did not want to be left alone, powerless, and isolated And yet we see every step of the way here in chapter 18 that the, the harder Saul tries to turn people's opinions on David, the harder Saul tries to get David to fail, the harder Saul tries to kill David, people love him more. Jonathan loves David. Saul's children, his daughters love David. All of Israel loves David. Even we'll see later on in 1 Samuel, the Philistines come to at the very least respect, if not admire David. That everything that Saul thought he could control based out of his jealousy and not wanting to see anyone else in that position have what he had is lost. It's like a rolling infomercial for like why you shouldn't let this become who you are and your identity. Why why this is a thing. Look, it, it is a very natural thing as I said before. For us to to see things in other people's lives, to see our life and say, you know what, I wish it could be this way. I wish I had that in my life. But there is a place and a time, just like Saul had there, where we can either allow that to continue its course and become the drug that we take over and over again and we have to keep feeding at potential threat to our own life. Or we can take a different course. And we say, you know what, I don't think I have to give in to jealousy in the way Saul did. And we could talk about how not to give in to jealousy, and that would be a really good discussion. But I think it's actually a lot more fun to talk about why we don't have to give in. To say why I don't have to give in to the insecurity and the fear that jealousy is born out of. See, that had been the pattern of Saul's life, hadn't it? I mean, from the very get-go. I think Ed mentioned this last week or the week before, but you know, when Saul is anointed, having been told already he's going to be king, he's hiding in the luggage, he's wrecked with insecurity. And out of that comes fear and jealousy and all these things. And looking at other people and saying, they have this or why can't I be like that? When everybody else is looking at Saul and be like, this is what a king looks like. The reason we don't have to live this way The reason we don't have to be people all the time walking around saying, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could do this. I wish I had that. I wish it wasn't this way for me right now. It's because we can remember who the story is about. We've been talking about this all along. Every step of the way in First Samuel, I mean, our, our series is titled "God is King," and, and the idea is this is a book that when you when you read it, as people talk about, it, they say this is a this is a book based on Israel's transition from a tribal system to a monarchy. And so there's all this talk about what it looks like to make that transition and what it looks like to have a king and how that king fails and how they move on to a second king and how messy it all gets and everything like that. And yet, as we've gotten deeper into it, every step of the way, we've seen God bringing us back to the fact and saying time and time again, but I am king. It's me. It's about him. Ed talked about this explicitly last week. When when he stopped fantasizing about the fact that David might have been a redhead and how to make his life a whole lot better if David was a redhead and and everything like that, he talked about the fact that the story of David and Goliath is not about David overcoming his own personal giants. It's about how the fact that God did that. And the only thing that made David special at all was that God was with him that's the story the story isn't about Saul or David see Saul makes the mistake of thinking it's either going to be him or me I'm going to be in the main character or he's going to be the main character and I can't think of anybody getting as much notoriety as I do if Saul had remembered that the story is about God he would have been able to realize there was space enough for both him and David Your life is not about you, and it's not about the people around you. And so because it's not about you or the people around you, it's not about what you have or what you don't have. It's not about what you're going through or what you're not going through. It's not about where they're at and what they've achieved versus what you've achieved. Questions like, why can't I be there? Why can't I have the corner office? Why can't I be like that and have their charisma? Why do I have to sacrifice the things I love the most and they don't? They are important questions, but they are not the most important question. It's kind of like if we ask those questions, it's kind of like going to a car dealership and saying, I want a red car. It's like, okay, I mean, that's important. We'll get to that, but I don't know if that's the most important thing. I think there's a few other questions we have to handle before we get there, and you're like, no, 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 I just want a red car. Okay. I mean, it still doesn't help me like, figure out like, what the right thing is for you. Do you need a minivan, SUV, convertible? This story, the story of our lives, is about the God who is king. He is the main character. And so the main question is not, what do I have? What does everybody else have? The main question is, what does he want and where is he going? And what does he require? This is a story about the God who created everything. It's a story about the God who called a people that were enslaved to be his people. And he brought them out of slavery under the grips of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. It's about a God who brought them to a land and set them up as a people, not to be like other people, but to be devoted only to him and to be a witness to everyone else. It's about a God who had a people that kept running away from him, and he kept bringing them back. And he said, if you keep doing that, there's going to be consequences. And he loved them enough to allow them to be punished and be taken off into exile. And it's about a God who didn't give up on them and forget about them and brought them back from that exile. And it's about a God who kept coming after them and coming after them and coming after them, no matter how dumb they were. And it's about a God who loved the world enough that he eventually gave everything. He gave his son so that everyone would know that love and have that life. That's what the story is about. And so we don't have to give in to jealousy. Because where we're at is not the most important thing. The kingdom of God and the glory of God does not rise or fall on how our house compares to our neighbor's. Or the fact that they just got a new boat and our car can barely get down the street. Or that we haven't gotten the raise and the promotion that we feel like we are deserving of and we see other people getting promoted over us. The story is about the glory of this God that is so good that he has given everything to us. Everything that we need, everything we could possibly desire. In the place in our life, and this means that in the place in our life that it is the most easy for jealousy to take hold in, we don't have to let it. The place where suffering comes in, where sacrifice is required, where we can look at others and say, they're not having to go through the same thing I am. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Colossians chapter 1, where he said this crazy thing. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And he goes on to say that through all of this, he is able to share the wonderful news of what Jesus has done and what we have in him. And as you get to the end there in verse 29, he says, It's for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me see, Paul knew that his suffering was serving an end. The goal of his life was to glorify God because God is the main character in the story of Paul's life. And the things that he seizes off, the things he sees is not right, the things that Paul can look at and say, it would be nice if it wasn't this way. In the moment that he realized that, he was also to say, but I know that God will use this to advance his plans in his kingdom. See, we see here in in chapter 18 that David is greatly opposed. There, There are all these things that are thrown up in David's face. Other people had it better. They had it easier than David. And yet we never see David complaining. We never see David jealous of what others have going on. Because we are promised that as followers of Jesus, we are going to receive hardships. We are going to go through difficult times. But we see time and time again in Scripture how God turns these things around for his glory. The best example of this is the cross. As we come together and we share in communion today, this is a time when we are able to come and remember. Remember what Christ has given for us. And to say, the reality is we wish it wouldn't have been this way. We think it might have been better if he hadn't had to do that. And yet we also realize That it's at the cross where God does his best work. It's the hardest things in our life that we can look at and we feel like we're losing. We feel like if that goes, what will happen to me? It's the hardships that we would rather not endure, the crosses we would rather not carry, that God is working the most profoundly to advance his kingdom. Not just in the world, but in our life. That we can let go. That we can look at what we are losing. What are you losing? What do you see in your life today as taking a step back? It's not moving in the right direction. What do you feel like is being forcefully taken from you? In the story of David and Saul here, shows us that we have nothing in our life to be jealous of. That we can look at other people and we can say, it does seem like their life is easier. I do wish that my life was that way. I wish I had that. And yet I know that the thing that I need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. And that God is using, will use, this cross that I feel I'm having to endure and bear to advance His kingdom. And that is what is most important. See, the reason we don't need to be jealous, to look at those around us and what they have and what we don't, to wish things were different, is because through Jesus Christ in his cross, we have God. And what more do we need? See, jealousy at its heart, is our soul saying that we truly don't believe God is everything we absolutely need. That there's something else. But when we give ourselves completely to him, we can know and will know and experience the fact that we are truly rich beyond belief. And so what in the world could we ever have cause to be jealous about? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, in this time we we open ourselves up to You, Lord. I, I I think it's ridiculous to say there there is a single person there. There's not one of us this morning that's, that's struggling with. Looking around and, and looking in other places to see what others have and we don't, to see what we're being asked to give up and they aren't. Lord, I think especially in, in a time of COVID and especially a weekend where risk levels have been raised, and we look in other places, and it's easy to see what others are able to do. Lord. There's a threat there of jealousy taking hold. I'm thinking that if we have something more than you, then our life would be complete. It would be better. We'd be able to live more for you, share you more, point others to the God we know and we love. But the truth is, everything we need is in you. Father, would you help us to be honest with you, with ourselves? Would your Holy Spirit come and search us out? And Lord, would this be a time that as we come to this table, this table that you have prepared for us, that you invite us to, it would be a time of commitment for us. It would be a time of repentance, of of letting go of and turning away from those things that we've been holding to and saying, I need this in my life. Because, Lord, if we hang on to it for too long in that direction, we know that it's going to turn into something that we are going, it's going to be, if it's threatened in any way, we will lash out, we will act out, and we will forget what you have called us to, who you have made us to be. So, Father, would you come in this time and in your grace, show us the things we need to repent of and, and give back to you. Remind us of who you are and who we are and what you've called us to be. But Father, in that repentance, would it be a time of commitment as well? Would you help those of us that maybe we have never committed to you in this way? Help us to take that step and say, I want to be yours. I want to know truly at the depth of my soul that everything I need is found in Jesus and to stop looking for fulfillment in these other places, to think that once I've made it, I'll be able to let go of this jealousy and this weight in my soul. Lord, would you help us to see the truth that is it will be something that becomes such a part of us we won't even know how to ever turn back. And for some of us, would you help us to recommit ourselves, that we've lost sight of that, that we've been looking to other things and thinking that that's the way to you when the way to you has just been you. Would you forgive us for the things we've put between us and you, that we've put at the very least on your level, and Lord, would we give ourselves over to the intimacy and exclusiveness that you so desire? to have with us. Thank you for everything that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus reclined with his disciples. He, during supper, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. You may take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the cup that represented salvation. He said, this is my blood, blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. You may take the cup. Let's pray. Jesus, it it seems maybe too simplistic. We, We know how complicated our lives are. And so it seems too simple to say we find everything in this bread and this juice. Would you show us the reality of what you have done? Thank you for the hope we have in your death and resurrection. And would we walk out of here knowing that everything we could possibly desire is because of what has been given for us on the cross and the fact that there's an empty tomb. It's in your name we pray giving you all the glory and thanks. Amen.